This is Rabbi Sharon Brous, Rabbi Adikar, where we're dedicated to reinvigorating Jewish community, ritual, and learning, all while laying the foundation for a just and loving society. You're listening to Ikar's podcast, where you can hear our sermons from Shabbat and holidays, our teachings, our guest speakers, basically anything we think worth hearing that we can capture and stream, you can listen to right here. The whole Megillah. I mean, literally the whole Megillah. So thank you so much for being with us. And welcome back. Uh, for those of you who have been with us this whole ride, this is um, class number three, our third Tuesday of uh, exploring the thought and writings of Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel. And if this is your first class, uh, then welcome, welcome. I'm looking forward to learning with you. Um, if you registered for the class, uh, which I believe you have to do to get this Zoom link, then um, then I should have your email address. And uh, I try in advance of each class to send to you all the reading that we're going to focus on today. But I, I send it just hours before the actual class begins because there's no expectation that you'll you'll have reviewed it. We're gonna we're gonna read it together, learn it together. Um, thank you once again to Neil Spears for ega buying, as we like to say. Uh, for for helping problem solve with the the technical stuff in this class and for keeping us in order. Um, let's start as we have the past two weeks with our blessing for learning Torah together. This is the blessing that concludes with La Asok Bidivrei Torah, thanking God for the privilege of immersing ourselves in these words of Torah. Baruch Ata Adonai Eloheinu Melech Haolam. Asher kichanu mitzvotav v'tzivanu la'asok v'divrei Torah. Amen, amen. Also, as we've done the last two classes, I want to invite folks um, to dedicate your learning this afternoon in honor of or in memory of someone who is near and dear to you, who, who you're thinking about and you're holding in your heart today. And uh, go ahead and put the name of... of whoever it is that you're holding into the chat um, so that we can welcome them into this space as we welcome each other into this space. Beautiful. Beautiful, okay. All right, so friends, I have an ambitious uh, lesson plan for today. Uh, I sent you even more pages of text than we normally get through. I think we normally get through one to two, and I think I sent you four, so you can see how ambitious I'm feeling on this Tuesday afternoon. And we'll see where we get. I'm not. I'm not attached to any, you know, particular outcomes, um, other than that we, you know, really uh, we we bring our hearts and our minds to Heschel's words, which I think is is a reward in and of itself. Um, before we open up the new text for today, um, I want to do a little bit of a recap, a short recap, um, not just because that's, you know, in last week's episode, best practice, but because, as I've said a couple of times, one of the goals of this class is to explore the building blocks of Heschel's theology. And I hope part of what you saw from the first class to the second class is that we are um, we are learning key terms, key concepts in Heschel's theology that together, piece together um, like a puzzle 
to give us a broader understanding of um, how Heschel understood the world and God and our place in the world and in relation to God. So we've learned about Heschel's concept of awe and Heschel's concept of wonder. And of course, the two might sound like synonyms and they are related, but part of what we explored the last two weeks is that they're a little bit distinct. Um, if you recall last week, the excerpt that we read from God in Search of Man began with this fabulous quote, the beginning of awe is wonder and the beginning of wisdom is awe. Right? Wonder, awe, and wisdom. And so we have to really unpack what those terms meant to Heschel. So I'm going to try to to boil it down to as sort of simple of a, of a you know, definition as possible. And so by wonder, by and large, Heschel is referring to the marveling, right? The experience of marveling, wow, at the existence of something rather than nothing, right? It's an encounter, wonder is an encounter with the mystery of existence, right? That anything exists at all, which then cracks open the seed that all of reality alludes to something beyond it. Okay, in other words, wonder reflects a situation in which our mind stands face to face with this irreducible mystery of existence, right? The fact of existence at all. The mind stands face to face with the mystery and begins to comprehend that the mystery of reality points to something beyond it, right? The sum is greater than the parts combined. And then awe is our realization that the ineffable thing that the mystery alludes to is God. Like God is to whom reality alludes. And we read last week, Heschel wrote, a way of being in rapport with the mystery of all reality. Okay, Awe is a way of being in rapport, in relationship with the mystery of all reality. Right, so when wonder ripens into a full awareness of God, we arrive at awe. Right, so wonder leads to awe, leads to wisdom, and wisdom is this deep understanding, right? Not just an intellectual understanding, but a, a felt knowledge in the core of our being, that God is the author of all. God is what everything ultimately points towards. All right, with that in mind, let's turn to today's reading, which, which really builds on what we've been talking about thus far. All right, so um, Neil, put this into the chat. And those of you who received the email um, re received this from me as well. Okay, so does everyone just give me a thumbs up if you can see the text in front of you? 
Okay, excellent. All right, here we're going to start with these italicized words. Lift up your eyes on high. Lift up your eyes on high. Now, this is a this is a quote from Isaiah 40, 26. Seu marom enechem ureu mi bara ele. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. Religion is the result of what man does with his ultimate wonder, with the moments of awe, with the sense of mystery. I love that. Right? Notice we have a new term here, religion. The big, bad, scary word, religion. Right? And I just want you to notice for a moment how different of a starting place this is for religion than what we might encounter with different theologians. Religion is not a belief system. Religion is not faith. Right? Religion is not even peoplehood or a central text. Religion is the result of what humans do with our ultimate wonder, with moments of awe, with the sense of mystery. Elsewhere, Heschel famously wrote, this is one of the like bite-sized Heschel quotes that maybe you've seen out of context. He writes that religion is not a leap of faith, but a leap of action. I think this first sentence that we read here builds on that idea, right? It's a leap of action that results from this orientation to existence that has begun to flower from the experience of awe into, in, experience of wonder into awe. All right. How did Abraham arrive at his certainty that there is a God who is concerned with the world? This is also, this is a great question, right? With an assumption baked into it, that God is concerned with the world. Heschel has not yet in our readings or in the three sentences that we've made it through thus far, um, explained why he thinks God is concerned with the world. Um, so put a pin in that. We're gonna, we're gonna return to that. If not in this class, definitely in next class, but I think we'll begin to get hints as to why Heschel believes, I think with, with certainty that God is concerned with the world. But nonetheless, what he's asking here is, how does Abraham arrive at this certainty? According to the rabbis, Abraham may be compared to a man who was traveling from place to place when he saw a palace full of light. This is a midrash from, from Genesis Rabbah, Breshit Rabbah 39.1. Um, and it's a midrash that perhaps you've learned before, or you've encountered before. Rabbi Braus gave a wonderful high holiday sermon about this midrash 
I don't know, six, seven, eight years ago or so. So dig through the archives to find it. Um, and what we're about to see is, is the crux of the Midrash. Okay, so Abraham is compared to a man who was traveling from place to place when he saw a palace full of light. Is it possible that there is no one who cares for the palace, he wondered, until the owner of the palace looked at him and said, I am the owner of the palace. So that's the parable. And now that's the mashal, now the nimshal, right? The, the lesson of the parable. Similarly, Abraham, our father, wondered, is it conceivable that the world is without a guide? The Holy One, blessed be he, looked out and said, I am the guide, the sovereign of the world. It was in wonder that Abraham's quest for God began. All right, do you see what Heschel is doing here? Right, he's taking this classic midrash in which Abraham encounters this palace so exquisitely beautiful, so remarkable, so filled with light, so mysterious, so inexplainable beyond the observable. And he says, who's responsible for this? This, this palace of light must allude to something beyond it, right? There must be some thing, some being, some owner of this palace palace that's responsible for this inc the incredible reality of this existence I'm taking in. Okay? And he gets a response. Yeah, it's me, right? The owner of the palace says, it's me. I'm, I'm responsible for it. And then Abraham extends his learning, right? Beyond the specific to the world as a whole. And so wonder, right? If wonder is an encounter with mystery that alludes to something greater, that's what's happening according to Heschel. That's, Heschel is reading this Midrash through the lens of wonder. All right, let me stop my share for a moment just so I can see more of you. So I, you've heard me explain it, but I'd love to hear maybe a voice or two um, in your words. How would you describe the wonder that, according to Heschel, kicks off Abraham's journey? Feel free to turn your microphone on or use a virtual hand and I'll call on you or a real hand and I'll try to see you and call on you. How would you describe the wonder? What's the experience of wonder that kicks off Abraham's journey? Wendy, go ahead. Just turn your microphone on so we can hear you. So one of the things that uh, Donna, to be, to wonder is to have curiosity. And curiosity implies within itself the notion of action, mm. of seeking. And um, even in the Midrash, it says Abraham going from place to place that that in itself is a holy act. And it reminded me of why when we go through a doorway, we have uh, the mezuzah. We go from one kind of existence to another. That notion of going from place to place is something that's 
that's holy. It kind of follows suit with what he talks about later on, the notion of being very conscious and, and present, aware of our where our existence is. And so um, as the notion of wondering already that that energy of being present of being conscious um i think it brings us to a state naturally a, a natural state of wonder nice wendy i like i don't know if this is intentional or not but i like the the sort of linguistic uh game between wandering and wondering right that you're you're pointing us to abraham is wandering from place to place uh and and he arrives at this palace which fills him with wonder right and notice that um e even though there's an answer to the question right who who is the owner of this palace that doesn't that doesn't end the process of discovery for Abraham. It kicks off the process of discovery. Aha, now that I know who the owner is, right, now there's a relationship to build. Now there's partnership to pursue. And we'll, we'll see that more clearly in the, in the passages ahead. Okay, now I wanna show you something very interesting about this Midrash. And this is partly what Rabbi Brass's sermon was about many years ago. There's an ambiguity in this Midrash about the Hebrew word that's translated here as full of light. In Hebrew, it's doleket. Right? A palace full of light in Hebrew is bira doleket. But the rabbis aren't exactly sure what birad doleket means. Rashi, right, one of the, the probably the greatest commentator and, and interpreter of, of text, explains it as we just read it, right? It's a palace full of light. But other commentators are going to translate it quite differently, which really flips the story on its head. And Heschel is aware of that. So I'm going to take you back into my into the screen share. This is now from a totally different section of God in Search of Man. It's in a it's in a section having to do with the problem of evil. All right, take a look at this. There are those who sense the ultimate question in moments of wonder in moments of joy. There are those who sense the ultimate question in moments of horror, in moments of despair. It is both the grandeur and the misery of living that makes man sensitive to the ultimate question. Indeed, his misery is as great as his grandeur. Now, here we go. How did Abraham arrive at his certainty that there is a God who is concerned with the world? Rabbi Isaac said, Abraham may be compared to a man who was traveling from place to place when he saw a palace in flames. Bira doleket, a palace in flames. Is it possible that there was no one who cares for the palace, he wondered? 
until the, until the owner of the palace looked at him and said, I am the owner of this palace. Similarly, Abraham, our father, wondered, is it conceivable that the world is without a guide? The Holy One, blessed be he, looked out and said, I am the guide, the sovereign of the world. The world is in flames, consumed by evil. Is it possible that there is no one who cares? What a difference, right? What a difference. A palace illuminated by light fills Abraham with wonder, right? In Heschel's read, which kicks off his journey of religiosity, right? Because remember, religion is the result of what we do with our wonder, Whereas in the second read of the text, Birad Doleket is not a palace filled with light, but a palace on fire. And Abraham asks the same question. Who's in charge here? This fire is destroying the palace. Does anyone care? But the question again for Heschel becomes a jumping off point for the need to be in relationship with the owner of the palace. Jen, would you say more about what you've written in the chat here? Well, it just, it stuck out, stood out to me when we first read the first version, like why would you see a palace full of light and go, does anyone care about this palace? It, it actually, yeah, somebody lit all the candles and made it pretty. Whereas this one makes a lot of sense. Why is this palace burning? Isn't someone going to put the fire out? Makes a lot more sense. Right. So I think what what what's maybe um, implicit by the text, but not explicitly stated, is that right. You, you sort of stumble upon this remarkable thing, whether it's remarkable for its beauty or it's remarkable for its I don't know its its danger or its state of disarray. But the owner of this thing of, you know, the, the, this thing that you're looking at is nowhere to be found, right? And so you want to know, like, how did this thing come to be? I'm, I'm wandering from place to place and I stumbled upon this great site. Who is in charge here? Who made it? Does anyone care about this? You would think, right, that if, if there was an extraordinarily precious place that you stumbled upon, right, you and the owner is nowhere to be found, it would raise questions like, is this your place? Do you care about it? How come you're not here? What's going on? Right? So I think either way, Abraham encounters something and he's, um, right? he, 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 he assumes, right, that such a place like this wouldn't exist if there was, if there wasn't an owner, but he is confused by the absence of the owner from the proximity, from the presence of the place. But yes, concern is a is 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 more understandably linked to a place on fire than the than a place than the place a place aglow, right? Um, Payam and Mark, I've got a two part question. Is God an omnipotent being in Heschel's philosophy? Could you say it again? I'm sorry. 
Is God an omnipotent being in Heschel's philosophy? I'm going to punt a little bit because I want us to answer that question from within Heschel's writings, which is part of my game plan for next week. Okay. Um, what I will say, what I will say for now is that to the degree that God is omnipotent in Heschel's theology, humans nonetheless play a vital role in acting in this world. I mean, the reason I ask is because this philosophy sort of doesn't make logic sense to me. Because if you say that God is an omnipotent being, then God also created the flame that are consuming it. So it's mostly like, okay, there's something greater than me and the guy's burning it. Maybe he has a reason for burning it. You know, like, so it's the deference isn't, I guess, there in essence. Mm. Thank you, Payam. Go ahead, Mark. Uh, what's, what strikes me uh, that's interesting is that the, the imagery of a palace full of light feels very Kabbalistic to me, given the Kabbalistic story of how all came to be, where the explanation as a palace that is on flame which is connected here in the Midrash to the problem of evil, feels very rabbinic. Hmm. And it has a lot to do, and, and the, 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 the rabbinic tradition is a, is a tradition of action and of confronting what goes on in daily, daily life. And I think that the two variations here of the, the Midrash uh, are reflecting those two fundamental orientations, Kabbalistic and, and rabbinic. Where, wow. does the, where does the, what's the source of the second one, this, this uh, Rabbi Isaac? So these are, so this is the same Midrash. Both of these are, are Genesis Rabbah 39.1. Okay. The, the only difference being how do you translate Birad Doleket? Okay. So is this a machloket between two interpretations? That's right. Okay. That's right. It's a, it's a disagreement born out of translation, a difference in translation, right? But as you said, Mark, they, they give way to perhaps different visions of the cosmos and our role within it. Leah, and then we'll continue on with Heschel. Yeah, I'm intrigued by both of them because I think they really looked at Abraham. Um, we don't use electric lights in the house, so I can tell you to light even a small space with candles requires a lot of organization, a lot of procurement of fire, procurement of candles, and somebody lighting them and making sure that they're safe. A palace that is glowing with light would get my attention. Um, and the other thing, the, the what I'll call the opposite one, Abraham is someone who su survived the furnace, yeah. flames. So um, how wonderful that the, the, the image of fire and flames is carried through 
to this point in his life from his youth and then into now this pivotal moment. Yeah. And here's what I'll say. Um, I think Heschel is offering two different jumping off points into the project of religion. One jumping off point, the palace of light jumping off point is, wow, isn't this gorgeous? Isn't this remarkable? Where did this all come from? I, I didn't create it. Someone must have created it. Who are you and how do I serve you? That's a jumping off point. That's wonder into religiosity. The palace on fire is, oh my goodness, how could this be? Who's in charge here? What's going on? Why is the world so filled with chaos and evil? There must be a different way forward. Where are you, God? How do I work with you towards rectifying the evil that I see in the world? jumping off point into religiosity. Neither are necessarily so, right? Each require a leap, right? You could take that initial insight and go in a different direction, right? But for Heschel, he's using this Midrash with its two interpretations as two ways of understanding how religion is, is born within within the human instinct okay let's continue on because as i said I'm, i was feeling ambitious in my prep so let's see how far we get okay so i've returned now to page one of our reading this is the palace of light we're over here this paragraph thus it is not a feeling for the mystery of living or a sense of awe, wonder, or fear, which is the root of religion, but rather the question what to do with the feeling for the mystery of living, what to do with awe, wonder, or fear. Thinking about God begins when we do not know anymore how to wonder, how to fear, how to be in awe. For wonder is not a state of aesthetic enjoyment. Endless wonder is endless tension. A situation in which we are shocked at the inadequacy of our awe, at the weakness of our shock, as well as the state of being asked the ultimate question. Take a moment just to digest that. Heschel is not interested in um, passivity. He's not interested in our noticing the feeling and having the story end there. Right? Because wonder. Right? It is meant to 
leave us with the question, how can we ever reciprocate for this breathing and thinking, for seeing and hearing, for love and for life, right? If you're so filled with wonder at the extraordinary fact of reality, right, then, and you just sit with it, then you're spoiled. <laughs> then you're not expressing gratitude. Right? Then you've received a gift and you're not doing anything with it. Right? So this isn't just about realizing something. This isn't uh, an intellectual achievement unlocked. Right? Once you arrive at the realization born from wonder, the question what to do with it emerges. And the state of being asked the ultimate question, I think for Heschel, the ultimate question being, what does God demand of us? What does God demand of us? What is God asking us to do with this precious life? Let's read on a little bit more and then we'll open it up. The soul is endowed with a sense of indebtedness and wonder, awe, and fear unlock that sense of indebtedness. Wonder is the state of our being asked. In spite of our pride, in spite of our acquisitiveness, we are driven by an awareness that something is asked of us, that we are asked to wonder. to revere, to think, and to live in a way that is compatible with the grandeur and mystery of living. What gives birth to religion is not intellectual curiosity, but the fact and experience of our being asked. All that is left to us is a choice to answer or to refuse to answer. I thought I saw a hand. Did someone have a question or want to weigh in on what we just read? <coughs> yes, I thought I saw you. Hi, Hannah. Will you just turn your microphone on, please? Just a thread that I'm hearing in this today is in thinking of the word religion just a few thoughts ago. Um, of the root of regularity and regulation is the root of the word, regular. Hmm. And <clears throat> I think you said a few thoughts ago um, that there's an aspect of wonder, which is shock. To really yeah. come, begin to have the awareness <laughs> of the humbling awareness that there is an aspect of shock. And so the doing, I'm just seeing in a new way this connection of action of mitzvot and regular and this, that it's the, um, we, so I sometimes, we sometimes think of regulation. Well, there's many, so many ways, but kind of the underpinnings of Musar work in this, of, um, the the overwhelm of being in that much wonder 
requires the specificity of regulation of action. Mm. Just that, just a language thread I felt to share to see if that, if I was understanding this clearly. Absolutely. I mean, I think, I think, um, Once, once Heschel posits the question that our life is ultimately an answer to the ultimate question, right? Then, then we'll we'll need specifics on how to live out a life in alignment with what God demands of us, right? But first, we have to recognize that our living is a testimony to the fact that God is in relationship with us, God is concerned with the well-being and affairs of humanity, and that we have a role to play in, in caring for God's creation. And mitzvot are certainly part of the blueprint that Heschel will say God gives to us in order to act upon that. All right, Florine, Jen, and Aviva, and then we'll see what time it is. Well, I see no conflict, no feud between the concepts of flame or light, sparkles. <laughs> I believe I live in this palace and that it's it's just part of my soul's being that it will leave footprints in the world, whether that be in times of good or in times of bad it's just natural feeling yeah thank you florine go ahead jen um regina made a comment um in the chat that got me thinking regina very rightly said you can't just live on the top of a mountain meditating and wonder i mean i guess some people can but i can't um, and I think if you did that, you would start taking for granted whatever you were meditating on anyway, hmm. um, which kind of, that's where we're getting like, wonder needs to involve like knowing the inadequacy of your wonder and hence answering the question of, of finding it over and over and over again by entering the world and exposing yourself to the world. Like I experienced wonder by meeting new people or, you know, traveling to different places or being challenged to take different actions. And I, I love that because it kind of answers my question from last week, which was, is this like an emotional thing? Is it like a cognitive thing? What the heck is it? Because it makes it seem like it's actually a behavior. It's like, or, or an urge to behavior, like what we call in like kind of my branch of psychology, an action urge, the feeling that you need to engage with the world in a way that is like influenced by a desire for wonder seems to me like what he is saying you could use to define that that that's the action or just the definition of what he's going for from what i can tell does that sound sort of accurate yeah no i i think so i think that right wonder and awe produce an action urge right and there's a question that drives the action urge, right? What what does God demand of us, right? But that question already has embedded within it the action urge, right? God is demanding something of us, right? And and that something is not just sitting and meditating. That something is doing something that 
um, that is a response to this question that is perpetually being asked of us. I think that's exactly right. Thank you. That's helpful language. Aviva. Thank you. We are just sitting here with wow this entire <laughs> time. I want to follow up with something that Hannah said, which is a little different than what you just said. When when Hannah talked about <laughs> regularity and specificity, it made me think that we need the um, discipline of our spiritual practices to ground us and to be able to stay in connection with the sacred and to be able to hold the vastness of this challenge between the palace of light and the palace of flames. Mm. And, and yes, we have to go out. I'm, you, you know me well enough. All of those people who know me, how I feel about spiritual practice, they all about being in right relationship and then being able to have the discernment to go out into the world with our actions to make the world a better place. But it seems to me somehow we have to ground ourselves. This is so huge that that I'd be interested in hear, hearing you say, how do we all hold this place of grandeur and this place of tension? So thank you. I'm not going to answer that yet, Aviva. I, I think I, I don't have the answer to it quite yet. And I and I think I think um again we can we'll 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 pick up on Heschel's answer over the course of our time together. Right? Because I, I think Heschel similarly recognizes that there are <laughs> there are lots of uh lots of traps of paralysis that we could fall into here. Right. And so how do we discern what the right action is? How do we, you know, move off the mountaintop? Um, how do we exist in a in in this world as human beings with free will and with agency? Um, I think, you know, Heschel is is certainly aware of the fact that those are um questions that if you if we don't if we if we don't answer them, but we leave people with a understanding of what this wonder is we're going to be really lost we're not going to we're not going to be sure where to go um okay i see the hands with your permission i want to take us one step further and then um i'll i'll let i'll leave the last five minutes for for questions judy and paul and i see you for wendy and i see you all first so i'll circle back to you first okay but i want to we, we've we've asked this really big question. Well, what does God demand of us? And I want to build on that a little bit more because I think we can uh, we can add a little texture to what Heschel is saying there. All right. So let me go back in here. All right. So I'm skipping ahead now. This is page two. Okay. <clears throat> So this is the section on, on revelation, um, which is already going to give you a clue as to where the answer comes from, right? If the ultimate question is, what does God demand of us? Where do we get the answer to that question? Right? And revelation is, I would say, the one word answer that Heschel would offer for how do we know what God demands of us? But as you'll see in the passage that we're going to read here, revelation is 
both something that happened in the past and is recorded in our sacred scriptures and something that continues to happen or there's the potential for it to happen each and every day of our lives for any of us. All right, so let's begin to hear Heschel in his own words. In our own lives, <clears throat> many of us have found that there are channels of knowledge other than those of speculation and observation. When living true to the wonder of the steadily unfolding wisdom, we feel at times as if the echo of an echo of a voice were piercing the silence, trying in vain to reach our attention. We feel at times called upon, not knowing by whom, against our will, terrified at the power invested in our words, in our deeds, in our thoughts. <clears throat> in our own lives, the voice of God speaks slowly, a syllable at a time, reaching the peak of years, dispelling some of our intimate illusions and learning how to spell the meaning of life experiences backwards. Some of us discover how the scattered syllables form a single phrase. Those who know that this life of ours takes place in a world that is not at all to be explained in human terms, that every moment is carefully concealed act of his creation, cannot but ask, is there anything wherein his voice is not suppressed? Is there anything wherein his creation is not concealed? Okay, take a moment again to digest. <clears throat> A few things to point out in what we just read. We feel at times as if the echo of an echo of a voice were piercing the silence. So I want you to notice that for Heschel, Revelation means that the thick silence which fills the, the endless distance between God and the human mind is pierced. God is concerned with the affairs of man. God is pursuing man. And <clears throat> it's very faint. <laughs> Right? It doesn't necessarily come booming through. He, he's, he, Heschel is using the Elijah language here, right? Still small voice as opposed to the, the thunder and the, and the fire, interestingly, right? And the wind, Heschel's using the still small voice. Notice though in the second paragraph, Heschel is evoking two different kinds, two different types of divine communication. First is a sense that God is speaking through tiny pricks of conscience that prod us to live better and holier lives. Okay, this is um, God speaks slowly, one syllable at a time. Right? But then there's a second form of divine communication, reaching the peak of years, dispelling some of our intimate illusions and learning how to spell the meaning of life experiences backwards some of us discover how the scattered syllables form a single phrase. 
Okay, so the second form of divine communication is a sense that God is imparting to us again and again, ever so subtly, the meaning of our lives. So there's the there's the stirring of conscience, right? That we might hear as a silent whisper or an echo of an echo. It's something internal that reorients our compass that gives us clarity how to answer the question, God, what does God demand of us? Right? And sometimes divine communication happens through reflection on the events of our lives and trying to discern God's voice in the act of meaning making within our lives which i need to say is different is a different statement than god did this to me because right god gave me this surus because right we've all heard some really dangerous version of that that's not what heschel is saying right Heschel is saying the act of reflecting on the events of one's life and deducing meaning from those events is a form of divine communication. More than that is a form of revelation. Okay, so we experience, individuals have the capacity to experience revelation both in the you know, quiet voice of conscience and in the reflective process of making meaning out of our lives, of imbuing our lives with meaning. Okay, I see some nods. So some, some of you like that. Um, let, me, let me just for the sake of fleshing out our conversation, read a little bit more. And then as promised, we'll take the last five minutes for thoughts and questions. <clears throat> Behind the radiant cloud of living, perplexing the unacquainted souls, some men have sensed the sound of let there be in the fullness of being. In others, not only a song, but a voice lifting the curtain of unknowableness reach the mind. Those who know that the grace of guidance may be ultimately bestowed upon those who pray for it, that in spite of their unworthiness and lowliness, they may be enlightened by a spark that comes unexpectedly but in far-reaching wisdom undeserved yet saving will not feel alien to the minds that perceived not a spark but a flame okay now this paragraph i think is crucial the idea of revelation remains an absurdity as long as we are unable to comprehend the impact with which the realness of god is pursuing man every man god in search of man he wrote a whole book Right? With that entitled, God is pursuing us. Payam, God is lonely. God is looking for relationship with us. However, collecting the memories of the sparks of illuminations we have perceived, the installments of insight that have been bestowed upon us throughout the years, we will find it impossible to remain certain of the impossibility of revelation. Okay, this whole paragraph is sort of framed in the negative, so you have to do like a little 
flip of it from negative to the positive, right? So, so he's responding to the people who are skeptics about the reality of revelation, right? And he's saying, um, no, no, revelation is real. God is pursuing us. And we have a collection of memories of the sparks of illuminations, insights that have been bestowed upon us throughout the years that help us be certain of the reality and the depth of revelation. And what, what is that specifically? I think he's gonna answer it two paragraphs later. The most serious obstacle which modern men encounter in entering a discussion about revelation does not arise from their doubts as to whether their accounts of the prophets about their experiences are authentic. The most critical vindication of these accounts, even if it were possible, would be of little relevance. In other words, don't try to prove the historicity of the Bible, folks. That's not what this project is about. The most serious problem is the absence of the problem. An answer to be meaningful presupposes the awareness of a question. But the climate in which we live today is not congenial to the continued growth of questions which have taken centuries to cultivate. The Bible is an answer to the supreme question, what does God demand of us? Yet the question has gone out of the world. God is portrayed as a mass of vagueness behind a veil of enigmas, and his voice has become alien to our minds, to our hearts, to our souls. We have learned to listen to every eye except the eye of God. The man of our time may proudly declare, nothing animal is alien to me, but everything divine is. This is the status of the Bible in modern life. It is a sublime answer, but we do not know the question anymore. Unless we recover the question, there is no hope of understanding the Bible. Okay, so when Heschel talks about the collection of sparks, the memories, the installments of insights that have been bestowed upon us throughout the years, he believes the record of those memories, of those insights, is the Bible. It's the Bible, right? So revelation is now three things. Right, if there's private revelation, right, which we talked about, the sort of sparks of conscience. There's the revelation of making meaning from our lives. And then there's the record of revelation of God's um, demonstrating God's concern for humanity and God's pursuit of man, which is found in the Bible alongside answers in the Bible to the question, what does God demand of us? <clears throat> so Heschel, Heschel elsewhere in God in Search of Man will write, just as it's impossible to conceive of God without the world, so it's impossible to conceive of God's concern without the Bible. The Bible discloses the love of God for man. So for Heschel, the Bible bestows upon us both a distinctive theology and its correlative anthropology, meaning a God who cares, 
and human beings who matter and an ongoing relationship and conversation between the two. All right, let's pause here. Judy and Paul, you're first up if you wanna weigh in. If not, you can you can, you can can let me know. I'll weigh in. Okay, Paul and then Judy, go ahead. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it just, when, I, when you finally got to the end and when you talked about God being an I, it took me exactly to where my mind was going, where it, the first thing we talked about was the palace of light. And um, God, is, according to Heschel, is not an it. It's not a force. It's not a watchmaker. It's the builder of that palace. And that palace is, that builder, unfortunately, is ineffable. We, we can't really understand God, but we can know him as the builder of the palace, but also we can, we experience revolution, revelation by seeing God as both an eye, as some being, or the, for lack of a better word, this thing that wants to be in relationship to humans, but also as a thou, as somebody who, or as a thou that we can revere and celebrate and see in its fullness. And the thou um, doesn't exist when we just see God as a force that that started this thing and just left us to squander. That's what I took away from it. Yeah, Paul, I think you're you're exactly right that Heschel's God is a is a, a God of relationship, not a not a not a God who's simply a concept or a force. It's a it's a personal God. Right. And and I would say the most profound way in which we experience the personal relationship with God is that God is asking each and every one of us a question. Right? But notice what what Heschel is doing. He's sort of doing like a one of these moves because the ultimate question that the human subject asks is already a question of a self seeking to transcend itself. In other words, the very question I ask, what does God demand of me, sort of pushes me out of center, out of the center, and places God at the center. What does God want from me? Right? And so the ultimate question that we are asking of God, what do you want from me, God? already signals receptivity and responsiveness, a desire to respond to that God, right? And that the notion of sort of self-transcendence is something we're gonna to touch on more next week, but this, even this question, what does God want from me, um, is a very different question than what do I want or, what, or even what do I want from you, God, right? The self moves, we've talked about the, the hub and the spokes, so this is a question that moves God into the hub and us into the spokes. Um, Judy and then Janine. Um, I'm with you and Heschel all the way until the Bible. Um, and I don't know what to do with that. Um, I understand that Heschel's... Um, view of religion is our it's born out of wonder and awe 
and leading to the the question of what are we to do with our lives, which is, I think the answer to that is something very individual and very intimate and very personal. And, and we come to it by, by prayer, by meditation, by listening for that still small voice, whatever. But he seems to be saying that we also, the, that answer has to be found in the Bible. And, and I don't know what to do with that. So I'll just leave it at that. Yeah, no, I'm glad you said that, Judy. I, I, I think that um, I think that there are two elements to the Bible, right? So here we mean Tanakh, right? Torah, Nevi'im, and Ketuvim, prophets right. and writings, as well as the five books of Moses. Um, I think that there are really two main elements of the Bible that Heschel think is thinks is so um, crucial to our, you know, both both hearing the question, recognizing what the ultimate question is, and then seeing the Bible as an answer to that question. I think number one is the the Bible's presentation of God as a God who cares about humanity, and when we meditate on that as the chief characteristic of God, and we try to emulate God and be in relationship with God, then we too take on the mantle of responsibility of caring for humanity. Um, Heschel sees God as egoless, right? God is fully concerned with the well-being of others, and Heschel wants us to be moved by that vision of God into a humanity that is an imitation of the divine. So I think that is what's crucial. That's the most crucial thing about the Bible for Heschel that that leads him to say that this is the, the you know, this is the record of revelation that we ought to aspire to li live up to. Um, and then the second is something that we spoke about before, which is which which are the mitzvot. I mean, Heschel does believe that the Bible gives us a, a path of behavior that allows us to transcend the, the ego and transcend the self and prioritize the concerns of others. Now, it must be said that like every other rabbi and person, Heschel is a selective reader of Bible, right? And Heschel is going to be challenged by the passages in Tanakh that seem to imply that, wow, God seems sort of selfish there, or, or God seems quite angry there, or God doesn't seem to be so concerned with the plight of X, Y, and Z, right? Those challenges are going to, those verses are going to represent the challenges to, the, to, to this read of the Bible that Heschel's putting forward. But, you know, I think... <laughs> The prophets, the prophets, right? If Heschel, when Heschel says the Bible, I think maybe more than anything else, he also means the prophets. But mm -hmm. Heschel is really using the Bible here as a way for us, first and foremost, to understand the nature of God and the the indisputable evidence, as he sees it, that God fully cares about us and in particular the oppressed and marginalized. We'll build on that in in future classes. Yeah, but could we come to that without the Bible? Could individuals come to that understanding of God in any other way? 
I don't know how Heschel would answer the question. I, I would answer the question, yes. I, I, yes, I think so. And I think it's instructive that even in just this passage on Revelation that we just read, right? He's clearly pointing to, I think, he's clearly pointing to different channels of Revelation, right? Mm -hmm. The first two that we read about the still small voice and the, the you know, the the reflective process of making meaning of our own lives, those to me seem to be plausibly entirely independent of the Bible. But he also wants us to know that the that he believes that the Bible is a is a record of of um, you know moments of insight and and flashes of revelation that our people have have uh, experienced and recorded over time. Okay, Janine, and then I know we're at 105, so I'm gonna, I'll wrap us up and after after you share, Janine. Um, I was just thinking in the third piece to what you're saying, Rabbi Panitz, <clears throat> I don't, I'm, I'm guessing it's Heschel's too, but correct me if I'm wrong, is just that um, if God is in the Bible, <clears throat> that we only get to that in community, you know, it's usually not in Judaism, a solitary study. And so in community discussing those things and grappling with those things, um, that's what's godly. I, not just specifically, you know, what does the Bible or Tanakh say about God, <clears throat> but that that it's a brings people together and that's the godliness. Absolutely. And and I think he he um, most certainly feels that way about the commandments, right, that are contained within the Bible, right, of which, of which a huge majority of them are commandments that ideally put us in right relationship with the other. But you're right that the, the practice of studying Bible and learning Bible um, in Hebruta, or as we're doing right now with each other, is, is one of the paths to godliness and revelation that um that that the bible points us towards all right wendy did you want you want to close us out okay just read it it's um i wrote it i think uh one of the things i i read ahead a little bit but uh some other things that heschel said to make room for God and to make room for wonder and awe. The notion that we must step back and make ourselves small. And it reminded me also of what God did when God creates the world. God refracted, God held God's self back to create the world so that there was room for the world. Just, and I think that it reminds me that maybe also we talk about being godlike to, to these attributes of God, to be, to be, have those same attributes. God wants us to be and experience the world as God experiences the world with wonder and with awe. And with love, I think there's a definite 
there's it's a love affair with God with all the trappings of that mm-hmm. also. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, as we said last class, right? Um, <clears throat> the beginning of awe is wonder, right? and the beginning of wisdom is awe, and wisdom is a kind of divine wisdom. Wisdom is seeing the world, seeing each other, seeing ourselves as God would see the world, see each other, and sees ourselves, right? And so I I fully agree with you, Wendy, that part of Heschel's project here is um, to transcend the selfish concerns of the ego or of the self and to adopt the view of 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 creation right the the view of one another that heschel believes that god by definition holds and that's revelation too we create every moment yes a notion of revelation that's All right. Thank you, everyone. My apologies for taking 10 more minutes of your time than uh, anticipated. Um, Thank you for a wonderful class. I look forward to seeing you one week from today, if not sooner. Thanks again, Neil, for helping. Hi, it's Rabbi Brous again. Thank you so much for listening. Want more content like this? I hope you'll subscribe. And please consider making a contribution to Ikar so we can continue to work toward the fulfillment of our mission to reanimate Jewish life, to embody moral courage, to nurture the spirit, and to work to decipher what it means to be a human being in the world today. Visit our website at ikar.org. That's I-K-A-R.org. And I hope to see you maybe even in person sometime soon.